Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Come aboard the co-sponsors of the Jefferson Lectures. I'd like to warmly welcome you and of course our distinguished speaker, President Kenneth Karst. The Jefferson Lectures, as you noticed from your brochure, is a, really a, a list of American intellectuals over the last 40 years. I guess probably what they all have in common is the kind of people that Thomas Jefferson would have liked to have dinner with. And I'm sure they'll feel the same way tonight. Uh, the Jefferson Committee, by Harry Schreiber, I think he's made a particularly brilliant choice this year. Um, since I'm particularly fond of Professor Karst's work, who wrote the same area of children in the law, um, and that's going to be a great treat for me, both to your lecture and hopefully to John And so I'd like to first introduce our very own Professor Harry Schreiber, Professor of Legal History and Inventors for the Social Policy and Law Program. Um, thank you. Uh, for those of us 
here at Paul, there are many of us who he invited as co in his role as co-editor of Encyclopedia of the American Constitution, uh, as one of the many who were recruited, several of them in this room, uh, to contribute to that work. I have to say that uh, it was a it stands as really one of the great monuments to scholarship and constitutional law and constitutional history. And uh, we and our students are very grateful to Ken and his colleague, Len Needed, for the work they did over many years for that magisterial volume. <clears throat> Jefferson Lectures are an endowed series of lectures that Bone Stout family established uh, through request in 1944, and essentially center the theme on which they center is uh, the history and theory of American democracy. Uh, what could be more appropriate uh, than to have someone like Kevin Karst uh, speak and speak on the subject of law, cultural conflict, and the socialization of children. Thank you for coming, Ken, and I'm happy to present it to you now. Thank you, Jerry. I'm just delighted to be here for a lot of reasons. Um, the Jefferson Lectures hold a special place in the uh, on the lecture series in this country, and it's very flattering to be invited to this podium. Uh, besides, coming here gives me a chance to see old friends and to make some new ones, uh, to see some of the faces that, whose names I have uh, cited in uh, my own work over the years. And the occasion also allows me to bow to the memory of Thomas Jefferson. He played, as everybody here knows, a crucial role in articulating our national commitment to liberty and equality. And those two themes are going to run through everything I have to say today. Surely Jefferson never gave a thought to the subject of transracial adoption, let alone the influence of MTV on teenagers. But you know, Jefferson wrote 15,000 letters. And if Jefferson were alive today, he would be engaged in a lively email correspondence on all these subjects that we're going to be talking about today. In the culture clashes of the last generation, political strategists have mobilized constituencies by sounding an emotion-laden theme, the use of regulatory law to influence the socialization of children. The emotion in question is fear. Adults are anxious about children's beliefs and identity. They hope that a child will continue to self-identify as one of us, or at least not as one of them. They're also anxious about behavior. They hope children will act in accordance with our values, and they fear that they may not. This afternoon, I'll be talking about several legal issues. I begin with two proposals uh, to regulate uh, the adoption of infants and small children. Then I turn to the socialization of adolescents with particular attention to schooling, to youth culture and the communications media, and to urban poverty. Proposals for regulatory law to govern children's socialization are debated with intensity, as if the laws were expected to have important effects on the lives of real children. But as we'll say, see, the ex expectation turns out to be largely false. And what explains all the sound and fury? I'll try to suggest an answer to this question. We're looking at these proposals in the setting where they have their greatest effects, and that is electoral politics. Today, the law of adoption is a subject of two parallel disputes. The first is whether gay and lesbian applicants should be presumptively disqualified for adoptive parenthood. The 
second issue is whether petitions for adoption of African-American children by white parents should be disfavored. Four states forbid adoption by a would-be parent who is homosexual. A less severe option is a proposed legal presumption disqualifying gay or lesbian adopted parents. Measures like these reflect a particular morality and a particular set of authoritative meanings. But a legal scholar has made a claim that purports to be factual that homosexual parenting, that's his term, homosexual parenting is harmful to children. This assertion has at least two elements. First is the improbable claim that a child so raised is likely, and now I quote, to develop homosexual interests and behaviors. Second is the claim that the resulting homosexual identity increases the risk of particular harms, such as running away from home, or substance abuse, or even suicide. The latter predictions seem wildly inappropriate when the young person is living with gay or lesbian parents. The stories about gay teens who suffer from depression, run away from home, or contemplate suicide usually tell of young males who have lived with parents for whom homosexual orientation is anathema. The common sense of the matter is that gay and lesbian teenagers, like other teenagers, will have troubled lives if they encounter rejection by their parents. Surely gay and lesbian parents as a group are not so likely to harbor such hostilities, and they are extremely unlikely to throw children out of their homes for being gay. But for opponents of homosexual parenting, the basic perceived harm remains, the risk that a child will self-identify as homosexual. As I've said, this prediction is factually weak, but I'll assume it for purposes of argument. This is said to be a risk of harm because a homosexual self-identification is itself seen as bad, morally wrong. The author of this proposed legal presumption has also said that the claims of would-be gay or lesbian parents are self-centered, not aimed at children's welfare. Rather, he says, by raising children in an atmosphere more or less the equivalent of a bordello, these parents are willing to make children, now I'm quoting, the innocent victims of their choice to experiment for personal gratification with extramarital relationships. I should mention he's also opposed to gay marriage and his catch-22 way. Apparently, one who is squinting in this way can see a lesbian and gay man not as a whole person, but as an abstraction, a walking bland. Those who argue against this presumptive disqualification are staking a claim of constitutional dimension. And one day, no doubt, our courts will hold that a legally imposed disadvantage based on sexual orientation is a suspect classification, requiring the state to show that the discrimination is necessary to achieve a public interest of supreme importance. But another basis for serious judicial scrutiny is here at hand right now, in the importance of a family relationship at stake. Once any sort of persuasive justification is required, then gross generalizations stereotypically fastened to an entire social group will have to give way to evaluations of the particular applicants for adoption. The Constitution to one side, the critics of a presumed disqualification are making their own moral claim founded on a morality of individual rights and responsibilities. This is the morality that became familiar to Americans in the era of the civil rights movement. But the gay rights advocates also make a broader argument about morality. That a homosexual relationship is not per se immoral, any more than is a heterosexual relationship. We're in the presence of two bedrock moral postulates, utterly opposed and beyond compromise. Modern gay rights revolution is seen by its antagonists as undermining traditionally authoritative meanings of gender. From 
from this perspective, a young girl who cuts her hair short, wears sloppy jeans, and dreams of being an Air Force fighter pilot seems to be risking the loss of her feminine gender identity, and perhaps the loss of her heterosexual identity as well. To call this a risk is to reaffirm a cultural worldview that gender is a crucially important marker of individual identity and social status, that the gender line must be sharply defined and vigilantly policed. Corollary is that both men and women must be seen as unambiguously heterosexual. We deal here with the authoritative definition of meanings. One kind of cultural authority is informed descriptive. It explains the way the world is. Surely it's fair to question the authority for asserting as fact that men and women are, in psychological essence, radically different orders of being. The other form of authority over meanings is explicitly normative describing principles for right behavior. This, of course, is morality itself. And so we've come full circle to the standoff of moral postulates. But it's the symbolism of group status that is mainly at stake in this dispute over adoption law. For example, the author of the proposed legal presumption against homosexual parenting seems to have no objection to a continuation of the de facto family composed, say, of the mother, her child, and her lesbian partner. This is a remarkable concession given that a considerable proportion of the children living in lesbian families were born within marriages to women who came out after divorce. It's clear that the actual living arrangements that would be affected by the proposed presumption would be few in number. The chief concern of the presumption's proponents is not that some children will be raised by some gay or lesbian parents, but that legislative or judicial acceptance of a non-discrimination principle for such cases will legitimize homosexual parenting in general making it, and now I quote, just as good and legally equivalent to heterosexual parenting. In other words, the main point here is to make sure that everybody understands it's not okay to be gay. The emotional energy for the gay rights agenda also draws on the connection between group status and individual sense of identity. The leading actors have much to gain from a broad legal principle of non-discrimination. But egalitarian reforms are never cost-free. Half century ago, the impending demolition of Jim Crow portended severe psychic costs for low-status white Southerners. And in the aggregate, those white fears were enough to sustain a major backlash against the civil rights movement. Much of the resistance to equality for gay and lesbian Americans also comes from anxiety about one's own identity and about the loss of status. The most virulent anti-gay sentiment originates in male self-doubt, and it is readily translated into acts of discrimination. Here as elsewhere, fear provides fuel for identity politics. In discussing group status, we have not left the subject of morality and authority. When a person who self-identifies as gay or lesbian seeks to adopt a child, no public issue is raised about morality, nor about authoritative meanings, nor about group status, so long as the applicant is closeted, keeping his or her homosexual orientation out of public view. When the would-be parent comes out, all those intertwined issues arise at once because now we enter the realm of public symbols. A law presuming that gay and lesbian Americans are not qualified to adopt would mainly serve not to control the lives of real families, but to stand as a totem representing the status ordering of social groups. Transracial adoption as a political issue is focused on the adoption of African American children by white parents. In 1996, Congress prohibited adoption agencies that received federal funding from giving any racial preference in the adoption process. 
Yet the debate continues on the relevance of parents' race to the socialization of adopted black children. And this debate is also part of a large and painful cultural conflict. White parents' adoptions of black children probably number well under 1,000 a year. But the number of those adoptions subject to the federal law seems likely to be considerable lower for two, for two reasons. First, black mothers who have never married are making only about 1% of their total newborns available for adoption. Second, the majority of those newborns who are adopted are placed through open adoption, arranged directly between the birth mother and the adopting parents without an agency as a go-between. Open adoptions are not regulated by the 1996 law. Those who nonetheless support a legally recognized presumption that black children should be raised by black parents emphasize the children's need to be taught survival skills in a society that is still unhappily infected by racism and a related need to form a positive black identity. Strongest opponents of transracial adoption, such as the National Association of Black Social Workers, also argue that black children raised to have white minds, that's their phrase, will be lost as resources in the political struggles of the black community to overcome racial subordination. This dispute has some parallels to the dispute over adoption by gay or lesbian parents. Skeptics about transracial adoption charge that those who advocate the end of race matching are doing so not with the welfare of black children in mind, but more selfishly for the benefit of white adults who are looking for children to adopt. Opponents of race matching, on the other hand, citing the black social worker statement, see the hostility to transracial adopt adoption as neglecting the welfare of individual children in favor of a group political interest. One writer calls it a black separatist or nationalist perspective. On both sides, these are serious moral charges. The social science studies tend to be optimistic about white parents' introduction of black children to black culture and about the long-term adjustment of the children, but the evidence is less than conclusive. And Elizabeth Bartlett, a prominent advocate against race matching, agrees that black children adopted by white parents are likely to develop, to develop and now I quote, a sense of meaning of race that is very different from that of black children living in a state of relative isolation or exclusion from the white world. The main disagreement here is whether or not it is good for black children to be socialized to identities and meanings in tune with integrationist ideals. For one observer looks forward to a progressively interracial society, another sees a black child who has been raised white and thus stolen from the black community, or worse, Here's an echo of the era in which black children were sold away from their families by white slaveholders. Now we reach the emotional core of the larger issue. And we can see why, even though only small numbers of black children are adopted by white parents, those who would restrict the practice talk about child stealing and cultural genocide. When such heated language is used, we see that the speaker's own identity is in play. Consider the picture of a child transferred from a black and typically poor birth mother to a white and typically more advantaged adoptive mother. This picture arouses a strongly negative reaction in many African-American mothers who see the transfer of the child as implying a devaluation of their own accomplishments in raising children under trying circumstances. On the other side of this controversy, too, the identity of the observer can affect perceptions of child welfare issues. Some of the advocacy against race matching has come from whites who have themselves been frustrated by an adoption system that has put them on hold because they're white. Some of them have turned to independent adoptions, and some have adopted children in other countries. These white parents point out that their views are shared by a number of black writers, 
and they do not see the small numbers of transracial adoptions as a threat to the national black community and its population over 30 million. Nor do they see themselves as lacking in concern for their children's development of healthy attitudes toward their own identities or healthy attitudes toward the meanings of race in America. It is clear that the issue of transracial adoption brings to the fore at least two competing moralities, along with competing cultural meanings of child raising and of race. But because the partisans see their own identities at stake, the perceived conflict about group status hierarchy looms over the issue in all its manifestations. And now for some words about adolescence. The idea of teenage rebellion is a cliche. But for many teenagers, the rejection of restrictions on their freedom imposed by parents or schools or the state is a resistance to authority that the teenagers perceive as illegitimate. Remember, a few centuries ago, before the invention of childhood, before child labor laws, before compulsory education laws, 14-year-old girls were often marrying and 14-year-old boys were in the workforce or in the army. Commonplace of modern life is the segmentation of people's lives into different sectors of experience. If you were asked to describe yourself, you'll probably come up with a list of features. Every feature you name will identify you with a group, with a community of shared meanings and emotions, with a subculture, in short, with an identity. You may say, well, these communities and identities are limited, and they are. But in the modern world, all communities and all identities are limited. Today, even forms of self-identification such as ethnicity or religion are in considerable measure identities of choice. Young people live today in the identity bazaar. Pluralization of identities and the choices thus available grow out of the major social trends of the modern era, such as, just to name a few, capitalism's individualizing influence, urbanization, changes in the family structure and authority, increasing mobility, mass communications, combination, these developments have pluralized not only the public world, including work, but even the world of the family. When Peter Berger and his colleagues say children habitually and disturbingly emigrate from the world of their parents, they're referring to cultural emigration, from the parents' morality, from the authority of meaning the parents have assigned to behavior, even from the parents' religion and their other group identities. Older children do not merely feel the effects of social change. Increasingly, they are seen, and they see themselves as the agents of change. Here in Berkeley, I don't need to elaborate. <laughs> I turn now to uh, three factors outside the home that transmit potentially identity-shaping messages to American adolescents. First, schools. Second, the youth culture and communications media. And third, urban poverty. In cultural politics centered on public schools, all the major social issues are represented. Religion gender, family, and sexuality, race, and ethnicity. The relation of religion to schooling had percolated in politics for more than a century before the Supreme Court's 1960s decisions holding that official classroom prayers or Bible reading violated the Establishment Clause. No doubt the acculturating influence of daily prayer is stronger for small children than for teenagers. Yet the constitutional ban on official school prayer has moved on from the classroom such adolescent activities as graduation ceremonies and football games, where the main concern is not acculturation, but the sense of exclusion. Meanwhile, however, religious groups have succeeded famously in obtaining both federal legislation and judicial interpretations of the First Amendment, requiring school newspapers or classrooms after school hours to give religious speech the same access as other speech. 
So the old line that God has been kicked out of the schools has lost its force. School curricula are another focus for religious politics. But the courts have held invalid such laws as the one banning the teaching of the Darwinian theory of evolution, or the one requiring the teaching, that the teaching of Darwin be accompanied by the version of the book of Genesis that has been rebaptized as creation science. If parents want to opt out of what they see as a curriculum hostile to religion, their main option is to give their children home instruction or to place them in private school. These options, often chosen today by fundamentalist or evangelical Protestants, recall the experience of Roman Catholics long ago. The expansion of parochial schools was a response to the public schools program of Protestant indoctrination. This indoctrination was designed to unify national culture by subordinating the traditions of Irish and German Catholic immigrants to the authority of American, that is, Anglo-Protestant, cultural forms. In short, one mission of the common school was cultural hegemony, and the religious side of that mission would violate today's constitutional norms. Parents who want to withdraw their children from public school have to confront the high cost of private tuition. For a time, the Supreme Court held that even indirect transfers of public funds to religious institutions were unconstitutional. But in the last two decades, the court has upheld a number of state financial aids to private schools, including religious schools. In the current season, the most lively issue is the use of vouchers. In such a system, the state pays up to a certain amount for a child's education, with the school chosen by the child's parents. Voters of California defeated one voucher measure two years ago, but the proponents of vouchers have begun to win some of these political battles, and when the schemes are adopted, the Supreme Court seems likely to uphold at least some of them. I'll watch your newspaper for the Ohio case. This prospect may be alarming to those who worry with good reason about the effects of pulling massive amounts of state funds out of the public schools, but their remedy lies in politics. In today's America, school vouchers do not present the main evil contemplated by the Establishment Clause, which is the threat of religious domination aided by government. Today, hundreds of religious groups contend for the allegiance of Americans. Generalized public support for private schools may be unwise, when it effectuates parents' choices about cultural preservation, it does not seem unconstitutional. For some parents, one objectionable feature of a secularized school curriculum is the treatment of subjects involving family and gender roles. One father wrote to a newspaper in Tennessee that he did not want his first grade daughter to be exposed to a reading te textbook that showed boys cooking and girls reading. He objected because the book might suggest that there are no God-given rules for the different sexes. With some three-quarters of married women working outside the home, this sort of objection is fading away. But if the schools assume imprint on family-related meetings as a minor source of cultural conflict, their assumed imprint on sexual morality and behavior has touched nerves all across the land. Now we're talking about teaching adolescents who are in a position to put their learning into practice. Public secondary schooling often includes such elements as tolerance of homosexual orientation, or so-called comprehensive sex education, which many parents see as unwise promotion of teenage sex, and some see as instruction in the techniques of sin. Teenage pregnancy, which was a focus for national politics in the 1970s and 80s, declined markedly in the 1990s. The implications of this data for schooling differ for different observers, and not surprisingly, the division tracks a more general cultural divide. Should the schools abandon sex education in favor of inculcating abstinence? Or should 
after they instruct teenagers how to avoid pregnancy if they are sexually active. This is one conflict that seems to cry out for a middle way. There's no inconsistency if the school sex education class teaches abstinence as a strongly preferred path for younger teenagers. While recognizing that some students will not choose that path, the class also provides some information about birth control and safe sex. Four decades ago, many of us who supported school desegregation hoped that mixing races and ethnicities in the schools would lead to friendships and learning across cultural borders. These hopes for the acculturating value of integration had dimmed even before the process of resegregation had become as obvious as it is today. Now the common school's propagation of universal cultural meanings has come under challenge for neglecting cultural forms of African Americans and of children whose primary languages are other than English. One response is a multicultural program, so-called. Typically, this is more no, no more than an effort to acquaint all students with the diverse sources that contribute to the culture of Americans. And when this rather bland goal is explained clearly, few objections are heard. Another response is to establish schools with a curriculum centered on the needs of African-American children, particularly to validate their sense of identity. Attendance at such a school is entirely at the option of a child's parents. The early proposals, with no more than a glance back at Jim Crow, were for separate schooling for African-American boys. Court decisions and administrative rulings have opened the schools to girls, and at least informed white children. Or we might add parenthetically, in the Detroit school district where the population of children is 91% black, what would it mean to have an integrated school? There's no unanimity in the black community about these schools, but the dissatisfaction of black parents with the schooling of their children is widely shared, and even without vouchers, a good many black parents have moved their children to religious schools. I should say I don't think that the Afrocentric or African-American-centered schools are unconstitutional. I didn't say that here, but I will say it in case anybody cares about it. Bilingual education in the public schools, for example, teaching Latino children in Spanish in the early grades, has been under attack in California where two years ago the voters adopted an initiative measure live largely forbidding it. No doubt some opponents are three R's traditionalists who see bilingual education as the trendy creature of a progressive education elite. But some of the vote for that initiative undoubtedly was a vote to maintain the existing status order of cultural groups, a vote fed by the fear that they were taking over. Many opponents of bilingual education candidly seek a forcible assimilation of Latino children into a national culture in the heavy-handed manner of the Americanization movement of the 1920s. The new nativism is no more admirable than its predecessor. Although the educational results of bilingual education are mixed, it does have two legitimate purposes. First, to assure children of effective instruction in math and basic reading skills while they're making a transition to courses taught in English. And second, to accommodate parents who are really transnational families who request help in raising their children to be fully bicultural. What is not legitimate, what dissenting parents should be entitled to resist on constitutional grounds, is mandatory and prolonged immersion instruction in the parents' native language for the purpose of holding the children within a cultural group. In any case, overwhelming majorities of immigrant parents know that mastery of English is essential to their children's future in the workforce. Not long ago, one strikingly successful elementary school in the Los Angeles area obtained the enthusiastic support of poor and working class Latino parents for a reading program entirely in English. 
According to the principal, the parents said, you teach them English, we'll teach them Spanish. Turning out a youth culture and the communications medium. The teenage question, who am I, converts into the question, who would they like me to be, in which they are neither parents nor school authorities, but a generalized other composed of adolescents in a nationwide youth culture. The socialization process for today's youth prominently includes television, movies, videos, popular music, internet chatter, and video games. In contributing to a common culture among teenagers, these media are performing some of the standardizing, nationalizing function once claimed for the common school. If you find this a disquieting thought, so do I. The most pervasive social product of the mass media is consumerism. Adolescents have money to spend, and they're ready to spend it on adornments for the naked self. This year's music, this year's shoes. The advertisers have sold Americans, and especially the children, the master bill of goods, which says that in consumer products lies self-presentation, a performance that passes for self-realization. Adolescents are the ideal audience for this message, for when they watch and listen, they bring their identity uncertainties with them. But they're not just passive victims of media seduction. If a message catches on, the reason is that the children are choosing to receive it. In the teenage media markets, boys are the big spenders. And in their nervous quest for the will of the wisp of masculinity, they're on the lookout for media symbols of power. For some children, media violence may contribute to aggressive behavior. And when it does, anxiety about identity is often present. In one study, when conflicts among ninth graders turned to fighting, the usual triggering cause was the perception of the need to maintain a social identity, to fulfill the demands of a social role. Media depictions of violence do sell tickets, but in the teenager's search for transgression, against authority, against order, against civility, violence is followed closely by vulgarity. Consumerism and transgression come together in the time-honored slogan, Sex Sells. It sells for adults, too, as primetime comedy demonstrates every single night. Music videos are also strongly oriented towards sex and designed to appeal to a teenage market. When an MTV executive says, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds, we own them, the hyperbole is only minor. Sex is particularly useful in selling to adolescents because they're just beginning to contend with its mysteries and to shape their responses to it. Not only are they acutely conscious of its capacity to bewilder, they're also afraid they will not measure up. A hip-hop lyric that demeans women may offer a nervous boy temporary relief from this anxiety. Singing along, he may imagine a momentary control over some essence of the feminine when he knows deep down that in the real world, Power is just what he lacks. Often a school, board, a school board election campaign is premised on the assumption that the school will have a major influence on children's attitudes towards sex and sexuality. But this may be the one area of teenage life that is least responsive to the school's assertion of cultural authority. The message of the youth, youth culture overwhelms the school's messages on this subject. For all practical purposes, too, the media's messages on sexual themes are beyond the control of regulatory law. And this even though the courts, including the Supreme Court, regularly say that the protection of children against indecent messages is a weighty governmental interest. For example, consider indecency on the internet. Whatever limits you may impose on your home computer, if one teenager in your child's set lives in a house where parents have not taken those measures, 
a whole world, and I mean literally a whole world, of indecent communications opens before your child. But in any case, the children do not need the media to learn about this subject. They learn from each other. In 1977, the Supreme Court divided over the constitutionality of a New York law forbidding the sale of contraceptives to minors under 16. Most of the justices thought the law would not be effective in discouraging sexual behavior. But today, this question, this debate, seems quaint. One major change in our society in the late 20th century was a lowering of the age in which children engage in sexual activity. This change is documented in survey research data but its meanings in the lives of teenagers are brought to life in Patricia Hirsch's book, A Tribe Apart, a detailed account of adolescent life in an eastern suburb. The theme of sex appears to be a constant presence in the minds of these teenagers. The confusion starts early with 13-year-olds trying to imagine the experience. Later, the veteran 14-year-olds compare notes on their initiation. When an eighth grade girl proposes a civics class speech on sexual harassment of middle school girls, that is, repeated and explicit sexual remarks and groping in the halls. Her teacher tells her the subject is inappropriate. It is evident from the outrage of girls in the class that the unfitness of the subject does not lie in any lack of relevance to the girl's daily life. Rather, the school, the speech is rejected because the school administration <clears throat> doesn't want to stir the anger of some parents. Ironically, the one thing that Hirsch makes dramatically clear is that with few exceptions, the parents haven't a clue as to their children's attitudes about sex, let alone the children's behavior. These middle-class children who spend a very large proportion of their lives segregated from adults live in their own culture, a tribe apart indeed. Two decades ago, Neil Postman wrote that television had destroyed the basis for the institution of childhood, which was the concealment of adult secrets until young people were educated, mainly through the print media, to deal with them. Sexuality was one set of secrets not suitable for children. Now, said Postman in the early 1980s, mind you, now all was revealed, innocence was gone, and childhood had disappeared. Today, and I mean 2002, there's middle-class adults who are innocent of the secrets of adolescence. The old question about innocence has turned back on itself. Shall we tell the parents? <laughs> The most dismal reality in the socialization of American children is that one out of six of them live in poverty. The figure for African and American and Latino children is about one out of four, with nearly 40% of black families living in areas of concentrated poverty. Some decades back, the notion of a culture of poverty was briefly in play among social scientists who theorized that certain values or anti-values in minority cultures inhibited motivations to work and save. I do not share that view, or the more recent version propounding a genetic weakness of intelligence in minority populations. My point is that concentrated poverty itself is a socializing institution, influencing the formation of teenagers' identities. Poor African-American adolescent boys in the inner city are at high educational risk. If school success seems to have no payoff, why study? When the prospects seem dim for a boy to achieve manhood through productive work, other avenues may promise to validate his masculinity. Consumerism reaches into poor neighborhoods, too, and the drug trade may offer quick money. These adolescent boys' male acquaintances are unlikely to be college-bound. Indeed, about one-third of all black males between 20 and 29 are incarcerated or on probation or on parole. 
So you see, law has played a central role in decimating the positive social contributions of a whole generation of poor African-American males. This is the combined effect of the war on drugs, mandatory sentences, three strikes laws, and policies to prosecute juveniles as adult offenders. A young black man's felony conviction for a drug offense can be an economic life sentence, severely limiting his prospects for decent employment and drastically reducing the likelihood that he will ever live in a stable family relationship. The consequences for poor African-American communities are calamitous. The tragic irony is that in the last generation, the nation's principal reaction to crime, that is, punishment of ever-increasing numbers of young black men with ever-increasing severity, has turned out not to deter crime, but to promote further law-breaking and further community disorganization. In this process, identity politics has made its own contribution, one tried-and-true means of mobilizing a constituency constituency has been to foment racial fear and to promise law as a form of control. Concentrated poverty also means that many a young black woman will attend a poor school, be unprepared for college, and see little opportunity for productive work. In these circumstances, school itself may be seen as irrelevant to her future. She may dream in her romantic moods of a life shared with a man who will join her in raising a family. But where is this young man to be found? Even as her motivation to marry is fading, pregnancy may have its own value as a badge of adulthood, an avenue to dignity. On this subject, both morality and authority have changed in all racial groups in the last half century. Motherhood will not make a poor young woman more employable. Her efforts to make men ends meet may be little short of heroic, and still they may fail. At worst, she may lose her child to a state agency that looks at the living conditions of severe poverty and labels them as child neglect. Meanwhile, comfortable observers like Dan Quayle and Gertrude Himmelfarb keep saying, mostly to each other, that, that such a woman is a picture of immorality and she should get a job, or get a man, or both. As for the politicos who say that teenage motherhood is a major cause of poverty, the most suitable response would be a Bronx cheer but this is a distinguished occasion, and I will just mention the massive body of evidence that this statement gets, uh, gets the main causal relationship exactly backwards. If poor adolescents, girls, and boys are to qualify for today's labor market, they'll have to be persuaded that employers will hire them once they are qualified. But for minority adolescents who live in areas of concentrated poverty, their daily experience socializes them to a sense of futility. The old causal assumptions about the culture of poverty were not inadequate, not because culture was irrelevant to the conditions of the poor, but because the assumption failed to give enough weight to the ways in which poverty itself acculturates. Half a century after Brown against the Board of Education renewed the nation's promise of equal citizenship, the vicious cycle of child poverty and racial subordination is a national disgrace. I turn now to electoral politics. Up to now, we've been looking at the consumers of cultural politics and their assumptions about the power of law to regulate the socialization of children. Here, in contrast, the protagonists are the political professionals. After stating some of their working principles, I turn to motives. Why do these operatives train the public's fo focus on the enculturation of children? Why do they promise regulation by law, even when they know the law is not likely to fulfill their promise? 
first rule of thumb for the political operative is polarization pays. An important part of a candidate's self-portrait is the designation of enemies who menace the authority of our values and cherished symbols, and it is insinuated, threaten the status position of our group. These portrayals are theater, consisting of posturing and gesturing. Adopting a law may be just such a gesture, implying not only the solution of some so-called problem, but also the group's status dominance. The enemy allows us to portray the contest not just as a matter of interests and tactics, but as a struggle over morality itself. The enemy's immorality is not just a rhetorical flourish. It provides the agitation needed to mobilize the constituency and hold it together. Rule two, never compromise. It's a tactical mistake to accept any compromise that might allow an issue of symbolic value to recede from the limelight. No wonder, then, that the most vocal opponents of sex education in the schools have no interest in reaching a middle ground that would combine recommendations of abstinence with instruction that will reduce unwanted pregnancies. The no compromise strategy is designed to keep the issue alive, but it is explained in the language of morality. After all, one can hardly compromise with servants of the devil. Rule three, futility doesn't matter. A political manager who specializes in the cultural politics will not be bothered by the prospect that it may be futile to try to control the socialization of children by making this or that change in the law. The ideal issue should not only polarize the polity into us and them, but should remain a constant threat to serve from one year to another as a highlight of direct male solicitation. In this perspective, official school prayer in classrooms, at graduation, at football games, can serve for years and years. Rule four, emotion can trump reasoning. For many a voter consumer, identifying a candidate as one of us may be at least as important as any position the candidate may take on questions of public policy. This identification of candidate with consumer is most effective when it is founded on emotion. So political drama, the simple, morality-laden, and polarizing symbolism of identity politics, tends to displace policy debate with its inevitable complexity and its boring details. The most effective pronouncements in cultural politics will transmit a mood of shared values, but lie beyond proof or disproof, as in the assertion, welfare destroys character. One result is the popularity among political consultants of election, of election advertising on television at the intellectual level of a cartoon. In cultural politics, a cartoon is worth a thousand words. Well, and why children? Although the saga of Elian Gonzalez did not grow out of an election campaign, it did illustrate the political uses of a poster child. I'll bet there's no one in this auditorium who did not see Elian's picture a couple of years ago. His mother lost at sea. The six-year-old Elian was found floating in the Caribbean in an inner tube. His father had stayed in Cuba and wanted Elian to live with him. With the Cuban economy tottering, Fidel Castro saw Elian's value as an instrument for political mobilization, and he demanded Elian's return, orchestrating chanting crowds in his patented way. Hoopla in Havana produced an explosion of emotion in Miami, where Elian was staying in the community of exiled Cubans. His Miami relatives and most exiles who were vocal insisted that Elian stay in the United States, free from the oppression of Castro's socialism. On both sides, high emotion was the order of the day. 
Then the U.S. Department of Justice followed what would be the normal pattern in the case we're not charged with politics and decided that Elian should be reunited with his father. When a federal court sustained this decision and the Miami relatives resisted, federal agents seized Elian at gunpoint for delivery to his father. In Cuba, thousands cheered and wept for joy. In Miami, thousands wept tears of sadness and outrage. Despite all the passion, not many people in either Havana or Miami actually knew Elian. For overwhelming majorities in both cities, he was above all an abstract image of a little boy. That absence of contextual knowledge, far from diminishing the public passions, probably heightened them by intensifying Elian's role as a symbol, a vessel of emotions engendered by fear. Elian symbolized, and for political purposes was, innocence, dependence on adult support and guidance, vulnerability to adult manipulation. He symbolized, and for political purposes was, the future. Not just his own future, or the future of the two contending families, but the future of his people. But who were his people? The contest over Elian's fate enacted a metaphor for the four-decade struggle in which propagandists on each side claimed the authority of the true Cuba and painted the other side as renegades. The fear of losing Elian touched the core of personal identity. In identity politics, look for more poster children in the years to come. But why law? A cultural contest can be carried on in many ways, from literary quarreling to armed struggle. But a call for the creation of new law has been a recurrent feature of the reaction against the cultural changes that swept the country in the 1960s and 70s. After all, the changes most disturbing to those constituents found early expression in law, notably the Supreme Court's decisions on school prayer, race, and abortion. Promises to use law to control the socialization of children are attended by a double irony. First, most of the relevant bodies of American law have been steadily retracting their regulatory reach. Second, the large-scale social transformations that have affected children's development almost certainly lie beyond the influence of any legal change. These two factors are interrelated. The privatization of family law and its retreat from earlier doctrines that impose traditional morality respond to currents of egalitarianism in American society and the radical individualism turned loose by modern society's pluralization of life worlds. So the effectiveness of law as a means of enforcing cultural orthodoxy is at most unreliable. No foreseeable principle of law will keep a mother's children and her lesbian partner from living in the same household. And whether the law governing adoption agencies be designed to discourage race matching or to promote it, the law is irrelevant in the rapidly growing number of cases when adoption is arranged without agency intervention. These are but illustrations of a larger reality about family law. On the ground, where individual adults establish living arrangements for themselves and their children, regulatory law has far less influence over what actually happens than might be assumed from the ardent rhetoric of cultural politics or even the more restrained rhetoric of culturally committed academics. When we look at socializing institutions outside the family, we see similar limitations on the influence of law as control. For any school, the lawgivers are numerous and diverse. Legislators, judges, the state board of education, the local school board, the school's administrator, teachers. And beyond the usual gap between the law's formal demands and its application by school officials, lies the deeper chasm separating official school policies from the beliefs and behavior of children. Nonetheless, 
Political theater goes on casting schools in dominant roles and shaping children's sense of identity and their attitudes toward the social issues. This view of the school's acculturating power may not be shared by political operators. The operators do their best to persuade voters that the assumption is valid. It may be ironic that law itself in the form of constitutional law has been so important an instrument for achieving the relaxation of regulatory law in the field of family relations. It is but a short step, already begun in some parts of the country, to extend this deregulation to tolerance of the unions of gay or lesbian couples along with their children. As this example suggests, the drift toward deregulation may be welcomed by cultural insurgents who want to redefine morality and public meanings. The insurgents do appear to have a long-term advantage. If what they seek is inclusion, that is, an end to treatment as different or deviant, but the same success cannot be predicted for an insurgent claim of separation, such as the black social workers' opposition to transcript racial adoption. Modernization and egalitarianism surely will continue to pluralize individual identities and to remind all of us, especially teenagers, that we're free to choose a great many of our identities. Surely the law can contribute to this process of liberating enculturation, but it generally does so indirectly by opening up opportunities for day-to-day -day behavior that will teach its own lessons. In the late 20th century, both anti-discrimination laws and newly recognized constitutional rights helped American women to see their opportunities and thus themselves in a new light. Most important of all, women's control over their sexuality and maternity found constitutional recognition. Granted, when the Roe case was decided in 1973, it did not so much stimulate the women's movement as go with that movement's flow. But in 1992, when anti-abortion advocates came within a hair's breadth of securing a nullification of women's right to, to choose, the very existence of the right, a right popularly known by the name of Roe versus Wade, played its own part in staving off the overruling. The plurality justices in Planned Parenthood against Casey remarked that a whole generation of women had come of age expecting that they could control their own maternity. And then a majority of the court went on to give that expectation the effect of a vested right. But it was not the abstract right recognized in Roe that produced this expectation. Rather, it was the exercise of the right by large numbers of women and experience committed by them to other women that acculturated millions of girls and women to see themselves in control of important choices. These included not just the choice to terminate a pregnancy, but the choice to take an active part in the public life of the nation, including the world of work. But in other circumstances, we've seen the acculturating power of day-to-day -day experience can undermine the sense of self. To repeat, poverty acculturates, and its effects are anything but liberating. So we end as we began with the themes of morality, authority, and group status. The moralizers disparage poor minority youths for what they call the immorality of unwed parenthood. They hurl this charge, without any reference, without any reference whatsoever to the economic conditions that would make marriage a feasible life choice and make it possible for two-parent families to make a comeback as the statistical norm. In short, the moralizers preach middle-class values at young people whose day-to-day -day experience provides virtually none of the foundations necessary for so-called middle-class behavior. Sources of poverty obviously are many and diverse, ranging over all manner of individual and structural factors. Here I'm concerned with the potential contributions of government to reducing structural barriers to equal citizenship. Regulatory law will not provide jobs. 
but a lot of even other forms can have liberating effects on individual children's uh, quest for identity and on, on healthy community growth. Imagine the possibilities for poor children in poor communities if a major fraction of the resources now devoted to punishment could be diverted to a serious employment program. Providing large numbers of the inner city's young people with a real future in employment would help young parents to maintain stable family arrangements and would give adolescents new incentives for taking school seriously. This liberation of energies would benefit the entire society. Law can contribute to this effort. It takes law to levy taxes and to institutionalize employment programs along with their backup services. Here there is no lack of legislative power. What is lacking is the will among more privileged Americans to shoulder the burdens of giving reality to the Constitution's promise of equal citizenship. Again and again, during this tour of the uses of law in cultural conflicts, we've explored some issue that generates high emotion, only to discover that the quantum of actual acculturation turning on the issue is small. Despite such limitations, politicians in search of voters will continue to raise anxieties about the acculturation of children, and they will go on invoking images of law as a means of control. At the heart of every political contest over culture lies some anxiety about the status of one's own, one, one's own cultural group, and thus about one's own worth. Law may or may not be power, but it sounds like power. <coughs> If it's vain to rely on law to control what teenagers do, one reason why is clear. It is difficult and in some cases impossible to devise controls that will limit the children without imposing similar controls on adults. How could we protect children against galloping consumerism without restricting adult markets, including media advertising, to a degree that would be intolerable and also unconstitutional? Denying teenagers access to indecency isn't impossible but any control that achieves this result will also deny adults access to the same material in ways that violate the First Amendment, but more broadly are unacceptable to a wide spectrum of adult decision makers. Similarly, it's hard to see how late 20th century changes in adult sexual mores, broadcast over evening television and backed up by the Constitution ever since the Griswold case, could fail to influence teenage attitudes and behavior in the same round. In one of those 15,000 letters, Thomas Jefferson wrote, the disease of liberty is catching from writing to Lafayette late in his life, that is Jefferson wrote. If adults in this era of hypermodernism want expanded individual freedoms, they should understand that adolescents are going to exercise those same freedoms. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Carson. We're going to have 10 minutes of questions. Professor uh, Carson is generously free to entertain your questions. And at 4.30, we'll adjourn for the Goldberg room upstairs where there will be a reception in which everyone is invited. So let me open the floor questions about this. And it's like That's okay. <laughs> yes, uh, Professor Collins. I'm not sure if there's a question, but another take on the uh, comparisons between the gay and lesbian adoption issue and transracial adoption, which is that within the world of adoption as a whole, there is certainly a fundamental controversy underway between the view of adoption as a form of as-if parenting 
that adoptive families are created to substitute for and to replace the biological that they cannot be uh, on the one side, and on the other side, a version of the openness or the continued contact that you referred to in talking about some of the arrangements on the transracial side, meaning an acceptance of the notion that adoption is different and all clap hands and celebrate. And it strikes me that in the um, on many of the discussions among gays and lesbians about adoption, the goal is actually much closer to recreating uh, adoption in the older as if the asserted equivalent of the biological. Since although the resort is to assisted reproductive technologies in order to have a child, so many of the, uh, the couples who are seeking to be same-sex, second-parent adoptive couples are not adopting other children or the children of others, except, of course, from the whole foster care system in Florida. But the main line seems to be to recreate with the biogenetic essential connection and therefore not really be different, whereas the transracial adoption folks are, um, are much more uh, on the edge of shattering the most traditional concepts of adoption because they can't be anything other than other and different since the differences are really announced on their faces as they wander around uh, the street. And so the, the black-white transracial adoption is really just a piece of a much larger picture of difference that includes the larger and larger numbers of inter-country adoptions that are going on, which don't play into the same political quagmire or legal quagmire as the black-white, but still are, are really to some, uh, on the forefront of the acceptance and embrace of difference. With 20,000 children coming in this year, for example, mostly from uh, Asia and the former Soviet Union and uh, the Latin America. So I, I, know I see the complexity of these issues as even going beyond the kind of complexity you suggest. Thank you. Well, I think that's an excellent point, and I thank you for, uh, uh, for focusing me on it. And I'd like to, if you're going to be around in the reception, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit more about it. One of the things that I think is uh, notable of the, uh, about the uh, transracial adoption situation is the problem of kids going uh, left in foster homes for a very long time, more or less warehoused in foster families. Some of the foster families would love to do, uh, you know, to treat the kids as their own and so forth, and even maybe adopt, but but some would not, and uh, the people who are concerned about uh, race matching are concerned about holding up for years and years, in many of these cases, any adoption of the black child, with the result that um, since uh, it's easier to uh, sell, if you will, the adoption of an infant than it is of the adoption of an older child, that there are, uh, these people will go on and foster homes indefinitely and then uh, never be in any other kind of uh, arrangement. You know, 
for some of them, that's fine. I mean, some of the foster homes are terrific, but not as a whole. Like I see you shaking your head. You agree with me, but not as a whole. So there, there is that as well. But, but please, let's, let's do a talk about that. One of the great things about uh, giving a talk like this before something is published is that you get a chance to uh, make it better uh, without leaving something uh, undone that should be done in the printed version. And I thank you. Well, you probably come to the right place. That's what you'd like to have because there are other learned commentators here. Can you visit? Yes, you spoke about uh, adolescence these days having the secrets and learning the innocence. And I think the law reflects this in terms of criminalizing ever younger juveniles for uh, offenses. And also in school, metal detectors, the locker searches, treating them as if they are dangerous human beings. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I do, yes. I, um, I was talking earlier today with uh, someone who I think is here, or she was here earlier, um, about um, the kid as citizen. Um, the, the, shall, shall we treat adolescents as if they have the rights of citizens? And that would include various guarantees, the Bill of Rights. And it's quite true that the courts have, uh, just as in the Fourth Amendment, the search and seizure amendment to the uh, Bill of Rights, the, uh, the court seems to have carved out what my colleague Robert Goldstein refers to as the narcotics exception to the, 14th, to the Fourth Amendment. That is to say, if it's a drug case, you can't claim it successfully because they've got a rule against you. Uh, I think that's true in the case of children as well. And uh, I think the locker searches are an excellent example of this. The notion that the school stands in the place of the parents and therefore can search the locker in the way that a parent might have the right to search somebody's room. Well, I mean, first of all, the premise might be, why does the parent, I mean, the parent does have a legal right to do this, but why should the parent feel free to go search the kids' room? But even if they should, the school is not the parent. And, uh, and, and so I, I agree with the uh, implicit comment here, which is that we're, we're sometimes, we're treating kids uh, as if they were adults for some purposes and not for others. And the choices that we're making with respect to that whether we're going to treat them as adults or not, does not particularly lie in any uh, evaluation of whether it's good or bad for the kid. Professor Grass? Probably politics is new, historically. It goes certainly back to the 1920s, especially around adolescence, and even back to the 19th century. Would you like to say something about whether there are particulars about this? about this time that are different from past experiences of this sort? Well, I think some of the uh, things that I talked about are, for example, the influence of the national media. The, the media are nationwide in their, in their um, reach. And uh, I think those media do have an influence on children far greater than any analogous uh, institution even in the era of newspapers, I mean, even in the, you know, the teens and twenties, uh, radio started, but, but uh, now we've gone so far beyond radio uh, with uh, the internet, with, uh, with MTV, with uh, televised and uh, videos, but other videos are just sold. Uh, um, so uh, I think that's different. Um, I don't think, I don't think children are fundamentally different. People say, you know, our students different from now. So they 
the same as the old projects. How are, how are things different now from the way they were when we started teaching, you know, back around the World War? And uh, I say, I don't think they're all that different. They have different experiences, they have, but I don't think they're smarter now, or you know, they may have learned different kinds of things in school and from, from media and, and so on. So I'm not, I don't want to assert that something has happened to the children, but I think children's environments are different. We're much more heavily urbanized now than we, than we were uh, in the early part of the century. And, um, and there, uh, I know there was plenty of, rate of, of ethnic diversity anyway in New York City in 1915. Um, uh, so you could have similar identity politics issues. But the media are not only uh, good ways to reach children, they're also good ways to reach adults about and on the subject of children. And you can wave the flag of danger and get it seen all over the country if you just buy a nationwide uh, spot announcement on a network TV show. Yes. sucking sound, that's it, <laughs> as he would say, end of story. So uh, uh, that is, it's the, the punchy line 
the suggestion that I'm with you and you're with me and we're all in this together and we're going to stave off the assault by those guys. That, and that move is far more important to in, in persuading people. I think this is terrible. Uh, I would love it if people would all uh, troop down to their library and pick up the League of Women Voters pamphlet and read it carefully and so on. They don't do it. And they won't, they won't read the League of, Women, League of Women Voters pamphlet or will listen to it being read to them either. I'm sorry to cut off discussion now. There will be a reception, but the room has been promised to another audience. So there are there are some people with hands up back there, and I'm going to be going up to this and come up soon. Yeah, please. I just wanted, on behalf of all of us and University of California at Berkeley, thank you very much, Mr. Fox. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.